What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, dress listeners, I do hope that today you will permit me to go off on a little bit of a tangent. And the reason for that is because today's topic is not strictly about clothing exactly, precisely, but maybe perhaps clothing adjacent. (laughs) Because today we are going to cover some of the meanings which have historically been attached to flowers. Which, I mean, if you think about it, it does in many cases apply itself to dress. Flowers, of course, can be carried or worn. And it goes without saying that floral textiles, whether painted, printed, woven, or stitched, have been worn by practically every culture throughout history. Most people commonly equate the giving of red roses with love today. But in the 21st century, how many of us are, quote unquote, in the know about the meanings which have historically been assigned to certain plants and blooms? Which is why we are so pleased that Jessica Rue is joining us to discuss her brand new book, Floriography, an illustrated guide to the Victorian language of flowers. Jessica is a professional freelance illustrator who has worked with The New Yorker, the Metropolitan Museum of Art on exhibition installations. She worked on Lena Dunham's online magazine, Lenny Letter, which Cass, as you know, I was a huge fan of, and I was really very disappointed when that folded suddenly a few years back. But, you know, I digress. Jessica has also illustrated album covers and more than a few books, including this one, her very own. So I had a blast looking up all my favorite flowers in her book, Tulips, for instance, which is my personal favorite. Apparently, also just like the rose indicates, I love you. And I did not know that. And not to mention the fact that reading Jessica's book, I learned about some flowers, which I had never even heard of before. (laughs) Well, I, for one, am very much looking forward to this chat. Jessica, welcome to the show. Jessica, Thank you so much for joining us today on Dress to discuss your book, Floriography, an illustrated guide to the Victorian language of flowers, which you both wrote and also illustrated. And I would venture to guess that many of our listeners are not necessarily familiar with this term, floriography. I wasn't familiar with that specific term. I knew what it was. I knew it was a thing, but I didn't know the terminology for it. So what was slash is floriography and how did you first come to this topic? Yeah, um, so floriography is a term for the Victorian language of flowers. So essentially, the popular flowers in this era hold certain meanings, and they could be used as sort of a secret means of communication. And so the different flower meanings would be taken from literature, mythology, religion, and folklore, as well as from sort of the shapes and characteristics of the plants themselves. 
And so growing up, we all kind of learned that certain flowers mean certain things. Like you get red roses on Valentine's Day for love. And when you're a kid, you play a game with like buttercups where you hold it under your chin. If it glows yellow, it means you like butter, that kind of thing. And so I knew a little bit that certain flowers like held certain ideas. But when I was studying illustration in college, I was doing a lot of work that focused on plants and animals and nature. And so just in the process of doing research into that kind of thing, I learned about and discovered that there was just a whole sort of alphabet or encyclopedia of different flower meanings. And so I thought it would be an interesting thing to sort of incorporate into my work, sort of, you could just bring in different flowers that meant certain things to convey a more meaningful concept in the work. And then um, in terms of starting working on the book, it's something that I wanted to explore for a long time because I would find these long lists of flower meanings and I would want to know why, you know, like why does a certain flower mean a certain thing? And so that kind of curiosity really drove me and I found it really difficult to find an actual book that included all of that. So you can like search for a flower individually and sort of pull up like the Greek mythology or something where the name comes from. And a lot of times that aligns with the flower meaning and floriography. But it was very difficult to find something that was similar to this that wasn't just a list of meanings. Because I, I mean, the why is what really drives me. I want to know, you know. Yeah. And actually, all of our regular listeners will know very well that this is why we make this podcast. <laughs> it's the why and the how that intrigues us about fashion. I am not a quote unquote fashionista by any means, but it's more that underbelly of the why, the how, the who that did the thing, that meeting that is kind of oftentimes hidden that is so fascinating. Yeah, it's so much more interesting when you get to like discover and research and find out the why behind anything at all. Like I love flowers and I love nature, but I'm not like a gardener or anything like that. You know, like I'm not growing crazy amounts of plants. I don't have a greenhouse or anything, but it's like, I just love the history behind it. I love learning about the Victorian era and all the plant meetings are just so fascinating to me. Yeah. And also I just want to point out that flowers have held symbolic meanings for a lot of different cultures throughout history. China, Japan, Turkey, they all have their own kind of codification or like cipher of what flowers mean. So I think as we move forward in our chat today, I just want to point out that we're largely discussing floriography as practiced in Europe and America during the 19th century specifically. So my next question to you is like, why were the Victorians in particular really kind of enamored and maybe even obsessed with this method of communication? Because it's not just a method of communication. It is extremely niche. It is extremely complicated. What was it about that particular moment in time in the 19th century where this became a thing? So Victorians were pretty much obsessed with proper etiquette and manners meant everything to them. So you couldn't go about declaring your love for someone, you know, there weren't giant public proposals or anything like that <laughs> that we have today. So 
having like these flagrant and open displays of affection were really, really discouraged. So it was more about subtlety, maintaining polite society and polite culture. And so choreography was something that they really connected with in particular because they did love flowers, like flowers were a big part of Victorian culture. And so this was sort of a way to communicate strong feelings that you were having in a secretive and beautiful way. Yeah, and extremely beautiful. So might you give us some examples of exactly how floriography was carried out? What was this practice? Yeah, so Victorians brought flowers into their homes. They would wear them in their dresses or in headdresses, and they would give them as gifts. And they incorporated flowers into a lot of different aspects of their lives. So floriography really was used by young women in high society It was a topic of conversation. It's something that you would want to be in the know about. And so young women would wear flowers in their hair. They put them in their dresses and they would often create little small bouquets to carry with them that were called tasimasis. So it's usually like one, two or three little flowers bound together. So they would, you know, combine them to have certain meanings and certain things to sort of convey what mood they were in or if they were giving them to a friend. There isn't a lot of evidence that floriography was used for communicating like really complex ideas with super layered meanings. There's not a lot of evidence that people were sending bouquets of like two dozen flowers that all had different meanings. You know, that would be like, meet me here at a certain time so we can run away together. <laughs> that would be great, but I think it would get really confusing. So I think for like two to three pairs is really what it kind of came down to. But one great example is that Victorians would give zinnia flowers to friends, particularly if their friend was moving away or going on a trip for a long period of time to sort of say, our friendship is everlasting. I'm going to remember you and miss you especially because travel wasn't the same as it is today. So if someone was going away for a long period of time, you don't know if you would see them again, like let alone when. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we actually have an episode on the intersection of fashion and the invention of the automobile. So we do talk about that intersection of like time and distance and friendship and also technology. So it was a very different temporal situation then. I always joke now since it's been the pandemic that time doesn't exist anymore, but (laughs) it does. We just are living in different incarnations of that concept. So speaking of time, actually, um, I was very much reminded in reading your book that in many cases, these meanings that the Victorians had kind of attached to very specific flowers actually dates all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome. So What was antiquity's relationship with flora? And we see this portrayed a lot in Greek myth, right? Yeah, so a lot of Greek myths, yeah, exists to explain why things are the way that they are. And Victorians seem to really romanticize the Greek gods and those stories. So I think it kind of pairs up in that way. So one of my favorites is the Protea flower, um, which means transformation. And Protea is named for Proteus, who is the son of Poseidon. Proteus could change shape whenever he wanted to. So he was sort of like a shape shifter. He would try to hide from his father a lot. So it matches up with Protea flower because it's such a diverse genus of plant. Like there are so many different kinds of of those types of flowers. 
Another is the laurel, which is about glory, victory, and success. And so ancient Olympic victors were crowned with wreaths of laurel when they would win in their competitions. Yeah. And I think people don't necessarily, I mean, we all know that, right? We all know that laurel leaf iconography, the motif, but I think that a lot of people don't ever stop to see and think about where that came from. It's the why. It's the why. Yeah, the why. <laughs> So you just mentioned a few different plants and flowers, but I'd really love to turn our attention to the meaning to other ones because there are so many of them that you detail in your book that have these very kind of poignant or interesting references and meanings behind them. So because there are so many that you did in your book, I would like to maybe kind of break it down into categories. So flowers, which you might present to a friend, flowers that you might present to a love or lover, and also even an enemy, because that was a whole thing too. So maybe we should start with friends first to start off on a positive note. (laughs) Would you tell us about the daisy, iris, and mistletoe? So the daisy is really interesting in particular because It stands for innocence, childhood, and purity. And there are like several different cultures that have assigned it this meaning. In Norse mythology, to the goddess Freya, who's the goddess of fertility, uh, motherhood, and childbirth. And so it sort of goes along with that childhood, purity, meaning. And in the Celtic tradition, daisies grew for the spirits of children who died in birth. And in ancient Roman mythology, the nymph Belides turns herself into a daisy to preserve her innocence while she's being pursued by Vertumnus, the goddess of the seasons. And then the iris has three different meanings of valor, wisdom, and faith. And so when you think about the shape of an iris, a lot of people think about the fleur de lis, which is sort of, it's an iris. So you see irises throughout history um, pop up in ancient Egypt. They were carved in sphinxes and used in Egyptian art. And Clovis I, who is the king of the Franks, after he won a significant battle, he saw irises blooming on the side of a river. And so the soldiers adorn themselves with the flowers. And so it has to do, you know, with the valor, wisdom, and faith that led them to the success in their battle. And mistletoe is interesting, too. Um, It refers to surmounting all difficulties. And that one comes from Norse mythology. Baldur, he was haunted by dreams of his impending death. And his mother, Frigg, made everything in nature promise not to hurt him, to try to help him out. But she overlooked the mistletoe plant because she thought it was so small and so delicate, like how could it ever harm him? So Loki, he's the god of mischief, he created an (laughs) arrow from the plant and gave it to Baldur's brother and convinced him to shoot his brother. And he did, and he killed Baldur. And so Frigg, in her grief, she begged all the other gods to bring him back. And so when they did, it proved that he could surmount all difficulties, even death itself. So that's kind of a really interesting one. And it's very intense. Like how did mistletoe end up being part of our Christian holidays iconography? It happened kind of with the Druids. It kind of was a holdover from their time. And then Christians sort of 
latched on to that and celebrations of Christmas to bring mistletoe into the home. And so it's a really bright white berry that you would see during the winter time. And it seems like a symbol of hope, like a bright light during one of the darkest and most difficult cold times of the year. Yeah. And also, I think a lot of people don't actually realize that a lot of exactly what you're talking about, the Druid, aka pagan iconography, is pulled into the Christmas tradition, including the Christmas tree, because that was a symbol of and a celebration of Semiramis and the decorating of the goddess Semiramis in pagan traditions. And also the, the decorating of the tree with the balls is all about fertility. I think that a, that a lot of people don't actually know that. So again, back to the why. <laughs> yeah, it's like secretly marketing Christianity to Druids to be like, oh, hey, we just make this up from let's, you guys. Let's hang out. Yeah. Yeah, doesn't that seem really similar and great? <laughs> <laughs> so not all occasions that call for flowers are joyous ones. And of course, flowers are part of many, many, many different cultures funeral traditions. So what can you tell us about the chrysanthemum and also the marigold? Because this is really interesting to me. Yeah, chrysanthemums mean condolences. And so they are used in funerals a lot. You tend to see a lot of mums, especially in Europe and in the U.S. And so this likely comes from decorating graves on All Souls Day, which happens in early November. And so during this time period, it's pretty difficult to find flowers that bloom during this time that are, you know, large and beautiful. And so the chrysanthemums do. So it sort of seems like a fitting one. Um, and marigolds are another one that, you know, they bloom around the same time of year and they mean grief. And they come from the Day of the Dead celebrations in Mexico, Dia de los Muertos. And this is when the spirits of the dead are believed to come back and visit the living in sort of a joyous celebration. So this is rooted originally in an Aztec festival honoring the goddess of the underworld. Yeah. And I love the fact that your book ties in not only European, Greek, ancient myth, but all these other cultures from like all over the world because it goes into all of this stuff and it's fascinating. And I also like, I love the fact that the Victorians actually knew this and they were thinking about these other cultures at the same time in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on to love next, if we can. Within floriography, we see different types of love relationships represented. And before we get to romantic love, I was hoping maybe you might tell us a little bit about the meaning of the carnation and also ivy. Yeah, carnations mean a mother's eternal love and heartache. And so during this time period, they were pulling a lot from religious meanings and carnations were said to have bloomed where the Virgin Mary's tears fell after Jesus was crucified. And so a lot of these sort of stories like that came about during the medieval time um, is when you kind of first see those things being brought up as sort of, it seems pretty similar to a lot of how Greek mythology and tradition would be, oh, someone died and a flower bloomed there. And that's where we get the name of the flower. So it sort of seems like they're doing a similar sort of thing. Ivy is about fidelity and attachment. So when you think about an ivy plant, it winds and climbs and remains attached to trees. And it'll still be growing on trees that have long since died. And so it's that everlasting hold on them. 
that really you get sort of the meaning instead from mythology or literature or folklore, but from the plant itself. Yeah, from its actual physical actions, which is like really interesting. Okay, so that's more kind of like a, a familial kind of sense of love, but there's of course romantic love meanings attached to flowers as well. And I would just say that this amazing, very intoxicating, sensual scent of orange blossoms, lilac, honeysuckle, these have meanings that are attached to romantic love. So would you tell us a little bit about these three blooms? Sure. Orange blossoms are one of my favorites to talk about because they were just the ultimate Victorian wedding flower. Yes. Um, it's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And this <laughs> mostly has to do with Queen Victoria, who mm-hmm. the Victorian age is named for. And so when she married Prince Albert in 1840, she had a headdress of orange blossoms and she wore a white silk dress which was adorned with the orange blossom flowers. And so when they were first engaged, Albert had given her a golden porcelain brooch that had an orange blossom, you know, insignia on it. And then he continued to give her things that had orange blossoms on them, um, jewelry items like earrings and headdresses and that sort of thing um, to sort of really cement that. And those are really cool and you can still find photos of them. They're really, really gorgeous. Yeah. And also it translated into what we would call a fashion trend because in the 19th century, we see so many like headdresses that were meant to be like wedding tiaras or attached to veils or different things that are orange blossoms. And sometimes they're realized in wax, which is all the more incredible and mad props to all the museum curators who keep these things alive and well for us. But yeah, orange blossoms was a huge motif. And also too, this color of orange or saffron in the context of matrimony actually dates back to antiquity too, because in antiquity, the bridal veil was oftentimes orange or saffron colored. That was very specific. So again, the why, the how. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating. So one or may- maybe even two of the plants and flowers that I found most interesting in your book were the fern and the daffodil. And they are directly, very specifically referenced by both ancient Greek and Roman writers. And they are also both in that story arc associated with water. I'm hoping you might share a little bit about the myths behind the fern and the daffodil. So ferns are magic and secrecy. It's so good. I love it. I love it. I know. It's the best. (laughs) I feel like it's one of my absolute favorites too. Um, So they grow in these really wet marshy areas, but they can repel water. So the water droplets sort of eat up on their leaves and fall off. So even though they're growing from um, a really wet area, they can still repel water. So Venus, who is the Roman goddess of love and beauty, she was said to have hair made out of maidenhair ferns. And so when she would rise up out of the sea, her hair would remain dry and it wasn't like damp and wet. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) It's just like, I just woke up and I have perfect hair. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, wow, she's so beautiful that when she goes for a swim, her hair stays dry. (laughs) And the daffodil is another one. I remember learning about this in like 
my 10th grade literature class. And it's one of the ones that's really uh, stuck with me. And its scientific name is Narcissus, and it means unrequited love. And so in Greek mythology, Narcissus was a very handsome and very proud hunter. And when he saw his own reflection in the water, he fell in love with himself. And because he can't pull himself away, he eventually dies and a daffodil blooms to mark his grave as sort of a reminder of unrequited love. Yeah, uh, for oneself, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) Another one of the really fascinating tidbits in your book, which relates directly to dress, is the snapdragon. So will you tell us a little bit about who was wearing the snapdragon in medieval times, the Middle Ages? Who and, and why were they wearing this? What were they trying to communicate? So this is one I love so much, and I really think we should bring this back. Um, so. <laughs> Snapdragons mean presumption and maidens who were, you know, young unmarried women, they would wear snapdragons in their hair to show that they weren't interested in unsolicited attention from men. So it was sort of a back off. I'm not interested. I just want to go about living my life. Please don't pay attention to me right now. No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. It's so good. I have a friend who one time said the best thing when the, we were on the street one day, just like walking, minding our own business, doing our own thing. And some guy came up and was like trying to hit on us. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm I, I'm not meeting new people right now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I like that. It's sort of like a polite way of saying like, leave me alone. Yeah. AKA Snapdragons. Yeah. We should definitely do that. Yeah. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us dress listeners in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. 
For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So I think that many of our listeners probably will already be familiar with the plant belladonna because it was kind of in a very well-known historic source of poison. So it's, it's not particularly surprising that the meaning behind belladonna is silence, a.k.a. death. <laughs> silence of death. And by the way, I have a 19th century belladonna pharmacy canister that I purchased from Slovakia a few years ago that I used as a flower base. It's so beautiful. I will send you a picture of it. But um, belladonna might be one of the things that you would send to an enemy. And there are a few other plants that fall into this category, some of which people, our listeners, I think might be very surprised by. So would you tell us a little bit about why someone might send basil, lavender, or tansy to an enemy? Sure. So basil means hatred. Lavender is for distrust and tansy is hostility. And so for basil, its meaning comes from the Greeks yet again, who believe that the plants unfolding leaves resemble a basilisk opening jaws. So the basilisk is known for being able to kill just by looking at someone. And I think a lot of people probably know that from Harry Potter. Of course. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's where most people probably know it from. For sure. So um, what about lavender? Why lavender? Because, I mean, we all have this in our home in some fashion or another, particularly in beauty products. And and people don't know that it's like, ooh, yikes. Historically, lavender would grow in really hot places. And asps, which are a type of venomous snake, would love to live in them, make their homes in them. So you have this really beautiful thing hiding something really terrible and secret. So it's said that the asp that killed Cleopatra may have been hiding in a bundle of lavender. So it's sort of something that has a beautiful presentation, but has something really distrustful about it. And so maybe, obviously she was killed, so perhaps she was presented with this bouquet of lavender as a means of, well, essentially murder. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just something that you'd be like, oh, this is like such a delightful gift. And then there's a snake inside. So (laughs) yeah. And what about the tansy? Because I think that this is also a flower that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Yeah. Tansies, I think were really, really popular in the Victorian era. And so sending a tansy would say to like the person receiving it, you make me sick to my stomach. So the plant in really high doses, it makes you sick. Like it can induce an abortion. It can treat intestinal worms. Um, It's sort of has like a medicinal tie-in in that sort of way. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that I especially loved about your book is that aside from all the gorgeous illustrations, which you did yourself, so everyone go out and buy the book, so you can see them, is that also for each plant and or flower that you detail, you also, on that specific like little section, give a few different types of pairing suggestions in terms of how one might express themselves through this language of choreography. So for instance, we were talking about snapdragons earlier, which is one of both of our favorites, um, which of course represents presumption. 
And you have written that pairing a snapdragon with holly, which represents foresight, basically those two plants together, you would basically be telling the recipient if you sent them a bouquet or, you know, a floral arrangement that you made an oversight and that it will never happen again. So you needed to know these meanings behind these plants in order to receive the information or the message that someone was trying to tell you. So it was kind of complex and also really, really subtle all at the same time. So do you have any particular favorite pairings of the meanings that you investigated for the book? Yeah, um, one of my favorites would be cornflowers with Sweet William. So this is sort of like a sweet love kind of arrangement that you would give to someone. So cornflowers stand for hope and love and sweet William stands for gallantry. So together it would mean I'll always be true, you know, Aww. sort of like a reassur- reassurance of, um, I'm love. here. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll be there. Then for sort of a more angry tone, petunias paired with rosemary is a great one because petunias stand for anger and resentment, but rosemary means remembrance. So if you put something like that together, it would mean (laughs) I'm not going to forget what you did to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's intense. I love this so much. Also towards the end of the book, you have not only just paired one or two flowers together to talk about like what that might communicate, but you've created entire bouquets with meaning for particular, very specific occasions. Would you tell us a little bit more about this? Do you have a favorite of one of those too? I do. Um, My favorite is the bouquet for bitter ends. Um, And so I really like the more intense or angry story (laughs) bouquets because you can kind of get a little bit bitter with your meanings here. Um, And so I (laughs) I think this one would be like, end of a friendship, end of a relationship kind of thing. But it's also a really beautiful arrangement with really cool and interesting flowers. I'm um, like, this one has thistle in it. And I love thistles. I think thistles and arrangements are really, really beautiful, beautiful and like really interesting. So this is like something you could make for yourself if this kind of thing goes south. And you can just keep it as a visual reminder to yourself that like, yeah, this ended badly, but I have all these really cool and amazing flowers to look at now. So that one involves petunias, which are anger and resentment, as we said before. Datura, which is deceitful charms. Tansy for hostility. And thistle for misanthropy. And wormwood for bitterness. Ooh. So, yeah. It's like some 19th century Victorian shade throwing. Definitely. Send somebody that bouquet. You're like, bye, Felicia. Yeah. Like... (laughs) So so you spent a lot of time, a great deal of time navigating and researching and inhabiting this kind of space of the 19th century. You were exploring the era's kind of like intricate system of floral metaphors and analogies. And I'm just curious before we sign off for the date, was there anything in particular that surprised you or did you have an overall takeaway? about Victorian culture at this era and why they were really kind of like giving so much care and so much thought into something like floriography? Because this was time-consuming, right? 
It was definitely something that would take a lot of time, something that you would have to research and read about and spend a lot of your time thinking about. What I found really interesting was looking at old scans that I could find online of actual language of flower books that existed during the time period, because some of them were in so much detail, just in so, so, so much detail with hundreds of different flowers and what their meanings would be and little Victorian illustrations on the side, suggestions for bouquets that you could pair them together with. And so I loved looking at, you know, the original source material. I found it just really, really inspiring, especially they were heavily illustrated. So as an illustrator too, I found that really, really interesting. And I've always really loved the Victorian era. I got like really into Victorian morning jewelry for a while. So like, yeah, we in our very first season, because we're now in season three or third year, but in our very first season, we did a two-part episode on Victorian morning jewelry, including an interview with somebody who still practices that art, which is very cool. She does hair jewelry still. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. A lot of times they would wind the hair in sort of a shape of a flower too. And so it's like, it all kind of ties back together. And so I, I mean, as someone who just, I love flowers, I love nature. Um, I love drawing from that. And so I just, I really loved how popular it was during that time period. I just think it's really inspiring. I just think it's like time for a resurgence, you know? Yeah, I'm with you all the way, especially since apparently we all have maybe, question mark, more time on our hands these days. True. <laughs> <laughs> but like, seriously, next time I send a friend flowers for a birthday or some sort of celebration, I'm going to very specifically think about these things. And I think that our listeners will be very intrigued by this as well. So... Thank you, Jessica, so much. Congratulations on the launch of your book. If people will want to learn more about your work as an illustrator and author, where can they find you? Yeah, so my website, if you just want to take a look at my work, is jessica-ru.com, R-O-U-X, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Jessica S. Ru. So the middle name right in there because Jessica Rue was taken. <laughs> Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Dress. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. April, that was really lovely. And I'm with you. I think I will also be putting a bit more thought into my flower selection next time I send flowers. And if any of our listeners are florists or big gardeners, and this inspired you to create some arrangements according to their meaning, please send us photos or maybe you already do it. I don't know. Um, We love, love, love when you send us photos. We'd love to share them on our Instagram stories with your permission, of course. Yes, and I would also just like to say that it may have occurred to some of you that we did not discuss the rose, and this may seem like a pretty glaring omission. But let's just say that it was a very intentional decision because there is so much more to say on that topic in the context of fashion history. So that topic, uh, you know, the rose in fashion, might be coming soon to a podcast near you. Very near you, as in this one, coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) And that does it for us this week, Dress listeners. May you consider the secret language of flowers residing in your closet next time you get dressed. 
please tune in this Thursday for our mini-sode where we either answer listener questions to keep you up to date on all the latest happenings in fashion history today, or when we do our fashion history mystery episode. So if you'd like to submit a question for a future fashion history mystery, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And of course, DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. And we will catch you all on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.